Welcome to the CCO Reads podcast. CCO stands for Catholic Christian Outreach, a Canadian university student movement dedicated to evangelization. CCO is on campuses across Canada, forming young leaders for the renewal of the world. If you'd like to learn more about our work, you can visit our website, cco.ca. CCO Reads is an initiative of some of our staff and student missionaries. We believe that reading has the power to transform us and our world. As we strive to be missionary disciples of our Lord Jesus, we want to be influenced by good books. In this podcast, I speak with interesting guests about their experience of books and reading. Thanks for listening. Don't know who the patron saint of podcasts is, but pray for us. Good point. Pray for us. Archbishop <laughs> Fulton Sheen. Venerable. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he had no clue what podcasts were, but that's what well, he, he is. He would have been for them. He would have definitely been for podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Pro-podcasting. So I'm here today with my friend Natalie Morrill, and she is a professor at Algonquin College in Ottawa. She's also a fiction editor at Dappled Things, which is a U.S. Catholic literary magazine. And Natalie is also a professional writer with her first full-length novel, The Ghost Keeper, coming out in May uh, from HarperCollins. Welcome to the CCO Reads podcast, Natalie. Thanks, Dan. It's really good to be here. So you're also a longtime friend of Catholic Christian Outreach, and you were actually a full-time missionary in, I think, 2010. Yeah, 2010, that's right. 2011. Yeah. So um, I remember 10 years ago, you were a student at Queens here in Kingston. So I just wanted to ask you, what is the, what's the story of how you met CCO and, and how did you end up becoming a missionary? I first met CCO um, or heard about CCO, I guess, through my brother, who was a student at uh, Carleton University, um, where CCO was before they were at Queens. So I, I knew about CCO. Um, and I think actually my first interactions with missionaries that I really remember uh, were um, like I would bring like carrots to the missionary outreach tables because you guys only had candy to eat. <laughs> but, like, I, I didn't I, I wasn't taking a faith study at that time. And that's kind of a, um, a thing in itself. But I, I think it took me a little while to recognize that I really needed what CCO had. Like, I, I recognized absolutely that you guys were doing good things. But I think at first I was, you know, I felt really busy at school. And I was like, I I love Jesus. I know Jesus is God. And like, that's why I'm at church every Sunday. And that's why I have a prayer life. Um, but I think it took me a while to recognize that, um, like, I didn't know how to be missionary. And I was sort of neglecting that side of my faith life. Um, really, all of the sort of you know, missionary and sort of fellowship side as well. Um, and not only was my faith incomplete because of that, but but I think it was also stifling my uh, growth in, in prayer and in the sacraments and everything. Um, and my faith was kind of stagnating because of that. So, so I think as soon as I did understand that, um, I just, I went to CCO so fast and was probably, you know, the easiest fish to catch, um, like just jumping into the boat. Um, <laughs> And, and I think like the more time I spent with CCO, the more I saw that God was working through this ministry so actively. Um, and my own faith had grown and I'd been so blessed in this um, that it was it was pretty easy to be open to doing um, a year of missionary work with CCO after undergrad. Um, I think 
kind of the situation I was in at the time was uh, I could see that there were lots of good options for me after I graduated uh, university, but it wasn't really clear which one of them was best. Um, and with with the the Vine year uh, with CCO, which is like the one year missionary thing, um, I I sort of felt like if I don't have a good reason not to do this, then I should do this mm-hmm. because it's like, you know, it's kind of just on the one hand, it's just giving a year to God to say like, here I am to serve you. Um, but it's also like, you know, kind of like a, a one year graduate program in, in being a missionary disciple kind of. Um, so I felt like, it, you know, there's, I had no reason to say no and it was such a gift and I'd been so blessed by this ministry. So it was really easy to say yes. Um, and then it was, it was a huge blessing to be able to do that. Uh, and I think it was also kind of where I realized that I wanted to take my writing really seriously afterwards. I was going to ask you, was writing still on your heart during that year or was it something it was. you kind of put on the back burner? No, it was very much on my heart. I guess I just didn't know, I didn't know what step was next or, um, if it was going to be kind of something I tried to fit around other things. Um, but I think in the time that I had, uh, I was in Halifax for my Vine year. Um, I, I just, I, I really recognized what things were most important to me. Um, and yeah, like what, what things God was kind of confirming me in, I guess. So, so it felt very, I think I had the courage to take it seriously after that, that I might not have had straight out of undergrad, which was yeah, kind of amazing to think about. Right on. Last year, um, in October, you gave a lecture in Ottawa on contemporary literature and the Catholic writer. I wasn't able to actually attend it, but I listened to a recording of it. And you actually spoke quite a bit about the vocation of writing, um, or per- in particular, your discernment of that as a vocation. So I wanted to, I wanted to spend um, a good amount of time today talking about this, uh, this lecture that you gave, because I feel like there was a lot of wisdom in there for... Um, Catholic readers and aspiring Catholic writers. Um, But I wanted to first focus on this idea of writing as a vocation. So in your introduction uh, in this lecture, you said that you've been writing fiction your entire life and that more and more you see it as a small V vocation. So I want to actually, I want to share a quote that you, um, that you said, something you said in that talk. I'm actually going to quote you a lot because it's a very quotable lecture. (laughs) So here's the first one. This is what you said. You said, my writing is my response to a gift and a calling as far as I see it. I believe that when I take my writing seriously and do it with as much love as I can, as I can bring to it, that I love God and I glorify God through it. So um, I wanted to know what are some of the ways that God confirmed for you that writing isn't just uh, sort of a hobby, but that it's really a core part of your identity and, and even a vocation. Hmm. I think in a lot of ways, um, and I need, I need a lot of ways. Cause I think, I think I am somebody who tends to overthink things and, and doubt, but God's been very good. Um, so one way is definitely in prayer, like over and over again, I think in prayer, um, you know, I think as a single person, a lot of things about my, my future and my vo- like big V vocation, I would say are, sort of, you know, uncertain up in the air. Um, but about this, like when I would say like, Lord, like, where do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? How should I give of myself? Um, around the question of writing, there's always just huge peace and kind of confirmation. And 
consolation and just sort of a very clear kind of like stay on this path. This is a this is a good way forward. Um, I think in in more maybe concrete ways or maybe more um, tangible ways, uh, the fact that like I. I perceive that I have a gift in this and other people confirm that, you know, like they, and, and have done for, for a long time. Um, I think maybe on a deeper level, uh, the fact that I, like, I think the more authentically I commit myself to writing, um, the more I need to go to God, which is amazing and telling for me. Um, like I see, the limits of um, like my understanding and my artistic abilities. Uh, and I also see like what a privilege it is and what a responsibility it is uh, to be creating art that people engage with so intimately. And that, that makes me desire God more and, and desire, you know, the, to be equipped to be able to do this. Um, so I think as I grow in intimacy with the Lord, um, I'm better able to show forth God Um you know, if I'm, if I'm more given over to him in that way. Uh, and I think, you know, I see that in my work, I could, I could be trying to be clever and I could be glorifying kind of myself, um, or I could do it to glorify God. And I think, I think the amazing thing that happens is that I see like, not only am I happier if I, if I sort of surrender it to God and I, I try to, to give it to him, but actually the writing is more interesting and better if I'm doing that and I'm not just, you know, sort of saying like, oh, this would be clever. Um, and then I think as a final thing, that's probably uh, been very helpful. Um, spiritual directors, for sure. I think, you know, um, I've had a couple of really good spiritual directors who uh, always affirm me in this, in, you know, in, ter- in terms of talking about the fruit that they see coming about from it and, uh, and the way that I talk about it. Um, because I think my tendency is sometimes to to just to, to wonder, you know, like, Lord, is this, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing with my time? Like, is this, is this for you or is this for me? And, and it's very helpful to have, you know, spiritual directors who can see clearly into how you're talking about those things and, and uh, give some kind of uh, insight, I guess, into that. Yeah, there's uh that's beautiful. Um, so there's sort of a, an interior, um, there's an, there's uh, something coming from within you, a desire or a yearning, a hunger, but then it's actually being confirmed from the outside by um, by people who uh, you know evaluate your craft or hear yeah. what the Lord is doing in your heart. Yeah, I, th- I think that's both sides of that are so essential. I don't think it could be just one or the other. Right on. Mm-hmm. Another thing you said, you said I'm never going to glorify God by compromising my art. I think you touched a little bit on this uh, just a moment ago when you talked about um, wanting to be clever. But what else does that mean? What did you mean um, by compromising your art? What else could that mean? Yeah, okay. So I think what I was referring to there, um, I kind of had a little crisis of, I guess, I don't know, identity or something as a writer um, when I was, I guess, probably towards the end of undergrad. Um, and I think it was kind of that I had had taken in this lie about uh, what it would mean to be a Catholic writer, um, partly because I think a lot of the uh, really exciting, interesting, artistically excellent, worldly writing, I would say, uh, that really captivated me in terms of craft, um, you know, was, was not necessarily Catholic. And, and, you know, I was like, okay, well, that doesn't necessarily reflect a lot of virtues that I know are good. 
Um, but it's really amazing and it shows forth, you know, certain truths and, and it's anyway, it's captivating in that way. On the other hand, there's, you know, this very pious and virtuous Catholic literature that I had been exposed to, uh, or, you know, sort of like self-proclaimed Catholic literature, perhaps, um, that I just, I didn't see the same level of craftsmanship in. And I mean, not like classical sort of, you know, from five centuries ago or something, but, but kind of what was happening, uh, through anyway, in certain presses contemporary in, in a contemporary setting. And I was really unsatisfied with that on um, an artistic level, but I could see how virtuous it was and how pious it was. Um, and, and I think the way I mistakenly interpreted that was maybe my love for artistic excellence is kind of, is kind of almost like a temptation in a way. Like it's, it's, it's uh, a temptation to, neglect the really important things um and put them as secondary and you know just focus on aesthetics um instead of truth or instead of uh goodness or all of these things um and i think like when i say it that way it's very clear that that's not a catholic way of thinking like that's that's not the truth um but it was i think it was good for me to be there in a sense because it i could see that potentially maybe my my love of of the art and the beauty of it needed to maybe be purified a little bit. And, and that, that could be something that I needed to be taken through by God, I'm sure. Um, but I think, you know, in the end, of course, as I said in that lecture, like God isn't asking for something less than he's made me capable of giving. Um, like he's asking for all of it. Um, and I think, uh, it, it helped me to come to that conclusion in, um, in reading a lot of different Catholic thinkers on art, uh, sort of essays and things like uh, Jacques Maritain has a, an essay called Art and Scholasticism, which is really interesting. Um, Flannery O'Connor has a lot of really amazing essays on that. Um, Dorothy Day and Walker Percy as well. Um, and I think, I think also at the same time, just like digging more and more into my own work uh, and realizing like it's, it's hard to write really, really well. Like it's to do, to do the really good writing, um, is so hard. And I think it's only worth doing for something that, that really matters. And I think, you know, ultimately the, the best writing is only worth doing for God, for me anyway. Like it's, that's been my experience of it. Like if it's, if it's not for the thing that's most important, then, um, yeah, then it's, it's incredibly, uh, like it starts feeling pointless in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think there's also an element of, you know, recognizing that um, this, this for me, like giving, taking all of that, uh, everything that God has given me in terms of giftedness and in terms of desire for, for beauty and for craftsmanship um, and, and putting it back in his service, um, I think is recognizing my need for humility in a way. Um, because there are things that are true and, and which need to be reflected in, in Catholic art. Um, but I think sometimes we can, we can kind of almost do violence to them or, or commit sort of a sacrilege against them um, by sort of wielding them maybe with a kind of smugness uh, so that these things that are, that are infinite mysteries uh, kind of end up becoming cliche. Uh, you know, like I think about like God is love, right? Like the statement, which is absolutely infinitely true all of the time. Um, but you know, like I comprehend that truth on only the most 
infinitesimally kind of like superficial level, basically. But if I just like, if I used it as kind of like this trump card in my art of like, oh, these fools didn't realize it, but I realize it, then then it reduces it to a cliche. And I think I think that is how some people have experienced these truths of the faith, um, just as cliche. Uh, whereas I think, you know, the truth is that God willing, obviously, like pray that we will be contemplating that truth for all eternity um, and will never run out of wonder. And I think I think maybe that like idea of wonder is is kind of key. Um, I think at least at least for me, the writing needs to be an expression of wonder and awe and of worship, really. Um, and if you're in awe and if you're worshiping, then then you can't really be smug mm-hmm. and um you may be at a loss for words, which is kind of hard. And then you, know, you need to find some words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your job is to find the words. Um, but but I think even just recognizing that this is important and it's hard yeah. puts me in that place of humility, but also of purpose, which is which is really amazing. Are you familiar with, uh, you must be familiar with Flannery O'Connor's statement. Um, somebody, I think, in a room asked her, why do you write? And she said, I write because I write well. Yes. You're familiar yeah. with that? Yeah. Has that, I mean, it sounds to me like you're, you're uh, reflecting that, that attitude, um, which I think some people interpret, misinterpreted as, as sort of a prideful, um, (laughs) you know, a prideful attitude, but really there's a humility in it because she, she knows she writes well because it's a gift that comes from God. Um, What do you, yeah. What do you have? What, what do you think about that statement? How how have you kind of, I love uh, that statement. I mean, it's such a Flannery O'Connor statement because she's so sassy and and sort of (laughs) is really happy to just sort of like, you know, not play the sort of pious church lady. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think, yeah, exactly. As you say, there's, there's a kind of true humility in that, even though it does come across as sort of prideful, um, I think she she followed it up. I think in one context with uh, talking about like if I if I was really really good at tennis, then I'd be trying to glorify God through tennis or something. Yeah. You know, like that, that's what I'd be doing. But I'm not. I can't play tennis. I can write, so that's what I'm doing. Right. You know, for God. Um, and I think yeah, like in terms of in terms of seeing this as uh, vocation, I think that's a big part of it. Like I I am a huge advocate of anyone who wants to write should be writing basically like it's it's like painting or it's like singing you know like this is for everyone it's not just for people who are particularly gifted at it um at the same time like if you see that you have a gift in something and if everyone or like a lot of people in your life are are affirming you in that and you're seeing fruit come from it um then it was it wouldn't glorify god to sort of bury that in the backyard and and you know treat it like okay well I'm not going to use that, but, you know, thanks, God. Um, like, that wouldn't glorify God. And, you know, there's so many parables, obviously, that that make that very clear. Like, you have to take it out from under the bushel basket and and uh, let it serve God. And I think that's what Flannery O'Connor was referring to in her wonderful way. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, even hearing that from her when I read her essays, um, it's very freeing for me because I think those are doubts that I sometimes have of, like, is this yeah. a frivolous way to serve God? Yeah. Absolutely not. So you you uh, <laughs> alluded to the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, so the, I'm going to ask you a question. This is going to take us really deep here, I think, and I'm I'm afraid, but we're going to go for it's, it. You okay. you mentioned um you said something like uh, you needed to be purified about your in your attitudes about beauty. Yeah. Um, in order to actually embrace beauty. 
right uh, which i mean beauty is is helps to whatever magnify or um proclaim truth um, mm-hmm. and goodness uh so this is where i'm out of my uh, my out of my depth because i don't know Maybe what the, yeah i don't know what the, <laughs> the, the proper dynamic or theological understanding of the transcendentalist is but uh-huh. i wanted to kind of hone in on what you said about beauty like what did you mean by that because i i would i would suspect that that's um that's a struggler attention for a lot of people who feel drawn towards the arts that there's a there's a need to be kind of purified of um or, or reined in or i'm not sure exactly what what did you mean by that purified hmm. um well i think i think with so many with so many things that are good um I guess with, with virtues or with these transcendentals and everything, it's, you know, there's, there's sort of a temptation to stray either way from the path. Um, and, and I think with loving beauty and, and loving God and beauty, um, it's, there's a temptation, I think, on the one hand, uh, to mistrust that completely and sort of think, um, you know, that's decadent, that's, uh, that's just temptation and and we need to be more ascetic kind of in our, in our, in our aesthetics. Hopefully that came across clearly. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and like sort of be very suspicious of beauty. And, and I think that's obviously not true. Like, you know, if you take a walk in the woods, you see that like, you know, yeah. God loves beauty and is beauty and, you know, is, is so beautiful and, and, and is leading us to himself through that. Um, but I think maybe on the other side of, of the other way we can kind of stray from that is um, maybe um, to get, I don't know, like perhaps like uh, fascinated uh, with beauty or privilege, privilege beauty above, um, above maybe these other transcendentals, mm-hmm. as you say, um, to the point where we're, we might say like, I don't care that it's not true. It's beautiful. Or like, I don't yeah. care that it's, it's evil. It's beautiful or something. Hopefully you wouldn't say that, but, um, but that your heart could kind of go there. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's one thing to, to see something that's very hard and difficult and to, to find something that's beautiful in it. It's, I think it's quite another to, to, um, to, um, I guess, prefer not to see the things that are hard and and just turn it into this kind of aesthetic experience um and and sort of yeah be be uh privilege that i guess above above um these other transcendentals um yeah and again i as you say i i have i have no sense really theologically of, of how <laughs> these are supposed to sort of exist in relation to each other um, I'm not a theologian for the record, but, uh, um, I think, you know, beauty is, is so powerful and it has this, um, like almost frightening power, mm-hmm. uh, to bypass logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's why it's this incredible evangelical tool, like that the Lord has not just given us in terms of doing evangelization, but to lead us to himself, basically, you know, like that, that I think sometimes our our thoughts can get in the way or if we, yeah. if we've sort of bought into these lies, then, um, then, you know, he's sort of, it's just a way of him piercing us immediately and, and, and having this really intimate way of, of showing us himself. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, that's, that's, um, it's like, um, God is, I guess, kind of this, God is mediated through logic when we're talking about truth. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like we, we kind of receive truth and we think about it. Uh, it's very left brained, I guess. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like there's a, there's a, a, a shield <laughs> to the magnificence <laughs> of God or something, but with yeah. beauty, it's immediate, you know, it's, it's like it immediate perception. It's not filtered yeah. with logic. It's just receiving God, um, in a, in a powerful, overwhelming kind of way. Uh, which is yeah. which is scary, and I and I think that there maybe like we're living in a moment, or I don't know, maybe most of us Catholics, I'd say myself included, live in that kind of left-brained Catholicism where we're mm-hmm. we're um, we really want to mediate, or we want our faith to be mediated through the intellect, and right. we want the intellect to be clear. Uh, we yeah. want hard lines, and um, especially in the culture that we live in, because it's so kind of amorphous. You know, truth is so relative. Um, we want hard lines. We want clear, easy truths. Uh, but truth is not easy. And I think beauty helps oh. us to see how powerful truth really is. I think that's, you know? yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. Like how, um, I think the, you know, if beauty is, is helping us to receive truth, um, and helping us to love goodness, then, these things are all in harmony, I think are helping each other. Um, if, if it's not doing those things, um, and, and if it's, if it's almost sort of making me feel again, maybe I'm repeating myself, but if it's making me feel as if, uh, well, it's, it's not important really if it's true or not, it's just, you know, I just need to worry about if it's beautiful. Um, I, I mean, there's different, you know, I don't want to get into this too much, but maybe from from a literary perspective, there are different ways of expressing truth, and and not all truth is like literal truth. Um, but but I think certainly for me as a Catholic writer, if if um, if I were consumed with the question of of aesthetics um, at the expense of meaning or purpose or goodness or any of these things, I think. Um, my writing would ultimately stagnate, yeah. you know, it would be, it would not serve even the purpose that I had given myself in that. Um, and, and I wouldn't be growing closer to God from it through it. I, yeah, no, it would be cut off from, from something very vital. Yeah. Right on harmony. I like that. The harmony. Between the <laughs> yeah. So just... for further reading, somebody Google that and we'll see what we come up with. <laughs> I want to, okay. I want to, I want to share another quote. This is from your lecture. We'll come back up okay. to the surface here a little bit. Sure. She so said, um, uh, as editor, so as editor of Dappled Things, um, he said, I see a lot of good writing and I'm honored anytime a writer is vulnerable enough with his or her work to submit it to us to consider. There's a really hard truth about this though. I'm not looking for good writing. I want to publish extraordinary writing. There's just no substitute for excellent craft. I would say, including being a saint. So we're still kind of, we're still on this theme, but what I just want to ask, what is the difference between good writing and extraordinary writing? Because I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, I dabble in writing. Um, and, uh, I think it's probably good writing at best, but what, (laughs) what is, tell me the, what's the recipe for success here? Um, what is the difference between good writing and excellent writing? Um, this is where I should have, you know, it'd be wonderful. I had a nice, clear, simple answer to this. I probably, there's no formula. You don't have it like a checklist. I probably don't have a checklist for, for what makes writing excellent. Um, or if the best, it would be like a very vague and confusing checklist. 
Um, it's, it's a bunch of different things, I think. I mean, maybe it's it's easier to talk about the line level that and like just the, the style of the writing than about the substance, but I will talk about both because I think the latter is actually more important, probably. Um, I think at the line level, uh, in terms of the style, um, it's a little bit ineffable. Like it's not, it's not super, super, again, there's no, there's no like little checklist to go down, but part of it for me is, is like a sense of, it's almost like having an ear for it, like having a, having a sense of music to, to the writing. Um, like you get the really subtle things that language does on all levels. So you, you understand the literal and, and how to create these images, but, but you're also very aware of the cadence, um, and the rhythm and, and the voice that you can give the writing. Um, and that's usually clear within a couple of paragraphs, mm. if not within a couple of sentences, if the writer has done that. Um, and you can tell like, you know, this is on the one hand, like a very competent writer. And, and on the other hand, somebody who's doing something really extraordinary. Um, and do I think you, about sorry, I want to interrupt you quickly. Do you read no, out, for do it. you read out loud when you're reading something? Somebody sometimes, submits? sometimes mm -hmm. it's, there are some things that kind of demand to be read aloud. Yeah. And if, if it seems like they do, then I do. Okay. Um, not everything though. And I think, I think most people when they read, especially if they read a lot, you, you know, you, you hear, you hear it in your head sure. kind okay. of, you, yeah. you hear it. So, yeah. so I think that's where a lot of it happens. But if it is, if it's clear that it's going to be something that um, reads better aloud than I, than I tend to read it aloud, I definitely read poetry submissions sure. aloud. Yeah. That's, that's necessary. Um, but doing that kind of work like that, that's, you know, it's like learning to, to play the violin really well. You can't just sort of read a book and pick up a violin and know how to do it. Like it, it takes devotion and it takes love for, for that art. And, um, and I think that's what shows through for, for people who are doing it in a really excellent way that you've, um, that you're loving the craft and, and treating it with respect, um, and, you know, not trying to take any shortcuts, um, I think also uh, like the really good stories, and I, I tend to look at fiction now more because I'm the fiction editor. Um, but you see that this is this is the the fruit of some serious reflection that the writer has done on the story that they're trying to tell. Like it's not lazy, it's not resorting to cliche, um, and you know, not in the language, but also not probably more importantly, not in the characters um, and not in the situations or the storylines. Um, I read a lot of perfectly decent stuff that that just kind of tends to sound sort of like I've heard it before. Like I've like I feel like I've read this story before, um, which you know is not necessarily a problem. But if it if it feels like um, this is like a less good Cormac McCarthy story or like a less good Muriel Spark story, um, that's I mean first of all like you know, my reader would probably like to read actual Muriel Spark or actual Cormac McCarthy. Um, but also, you know, you, if, if you're a writer and you're putting that much into it, like you probably have this particular gift and a particular kind of story that you, you alone can tell. Um, and, and maybe you just haven't figured out what that is yet. And you're still kind of maybe presenting other writers ways of doing things that, uh, that you've loved in the past. Um, so I think, I think it's often um, just kind of seeing that this writer has uh, gone beyond the obvious in in uh, in their subject matter and in their treatment of the subject matter. Because anything anything could make a good story in the hands of the right person, um, but that this person has yeah has seen how to 
present this in a way that it's going to be fresh and intriguing and surprising and delightful for for a reader um and even for a reader who reads a lot Hmm. um so yeah basically i you know i kind of want to be going wow and not just be like that was perfectly fine yeah maybe that's like (laughs) the simplest way of saying it thanks for listening today if you enjoyed the show we'd be grateful if you'd like comment and share on social media To find out more about CCO Reads, you can visit our blog, ccoreads.wordpress.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Live the Books You Love. If you'd like to hear other episodes of the CCO Reads podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud. The music that you're hearing on the podcast is by Claymere, one of Saskatoon's up-and-coming new artists. You can check out his entire album called Waiting on the Sun, and that's on facebook.com slash Claymere, C-L-A-Y-M-E-R-E. The track that you're hearing is called In the Silence.